0: Amen. All right. Flip with me in your Bibles to Mark 5 25. And if you are willing and able, please stand with me to read the word of the Lord. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When Ian asked me to teach on prayer, I immediately thought of this passage. This text was the core of one of the most powerful sermons I had listened to when I just became a Christian. My church was going through the Gospel of Mark, and my pastor at the time, John Mark Comer, gave a sermon in this section of Scripture that catalyzed in me a love for Jesus and the Bible that I had never experienced before. And today, as we talk about prayer in relationship to faith, I couldn't think of a better sermon to plagiarize. I'm just kidding, but to make sure credit is given where it's genuinely due, there are parts of today's teaching that I only know because of the sermon I listened to 10 years ago. And I hope that the gift that I received then, I can give to all of you today. So in the spirit of following joyfully in John Mark's footsteps, let's go line by line of the text. Verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Okay, flip with me to Leviticus 15. This is towards the front of your Bible. Sometimes we go too far. Okay, perfect. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 25. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as the days she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period." Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean as is is her bed during her monthly period. And anything she sits on will be unclean as during her monthly period anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water and they will be unclean till evening. Jump down to verse 31. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. Good morning, church. I think I can say with 100% accuracy that none of you anticipated talking about periods this morning. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Hang in there with me. I promise there is a beautiful arc to this story. Because in order for us to understand why the gospel of Mark states that there's a bleeding woman, we must turn to the context which grounds its importance. This is why we turn to the book of Leviticus. And if you're new to the Bible, Leviticus is one of the books of the Torah that outlines for God's chosen community of the Hebrew Bible, the Israelites, what they need to do to be able to enter into the temple of God's presence. And these purifying rituals for entering into the temple had to do with sin and uncleanliness. Now, these two notions are distinct. However, the idea of cleanliness and uncleanliness might feel like a foreign notion for us in the 21st century. But to the ancient Israelites, these terms function similarly to our notions of sickness and health. So in this context, cleanliness actually refers to those who are healthy or whole. Another translation that I love is to exist in an ideal state. By contrast, to exist in an unclean state is to have come in contact with something that has brought you to the boundary of life and death. And so to touch something associated with death brings you from cleanliness to uncleanliness or a whole state to a decaying state. If this idea still feels strange, I want you to think back to March of 2020. I don't know about you, but the pandemic has completely rewritten my understanding of cleanliness and uncleanliness. I'm pretty sure that the first six months of the pandemic, I washed my hands more than I have my entire life. I wore my mask religiously in every public setting that I went to. I even wiped down with Clorox wipes every single day thing that came into my house for fear that I would bring home a disease that would harm me and my family. And I'm not at all intending to imply that these things were bad things. The CDC gave us recommendations that changed over time that reflected the safest way to live based on the information that they had. But unfortunately, many times, our practices around cleanliness and uncleanliness become stigmatized. I am not at all convinced that the CDC had any moral agenda when giving us recommendations on how to remain safe. But we, as a society, ultimately ended up attributing moral statuses to these practices based on our surrounding communities of who was clean and unclean. And so it's helpful for us as modern readers of the Bible to understand the rules of Leviticus much more like ancient sanitary practices. And it's fair to say that while some may seem really intuitive to us, like not touching dead bodies, others seem highly problematic and fueled by power dynamics and unjust social structures. However, I want to suggest that our modern reception of these passages, like Leviticus 15, are highly influenced by our cultural assumptions of what we believe to be clean and unclean. And while the inheritance of this verse and its abuses might leave us understandably frustrated, we have to remember that just prior to these verses that I've read for you today, there is actually a whole section detailing the many ways male bodily fluid makes a man unclean. And this status of uncleanliness was not intended to have moral content, just like the CDC's recommendations, they were just meant to keep you safe. Rather, for the ancient Israelites, these cleanliness and uncleanliness ideas referred to everyday experiences people have that make them unclean because they're the simple, inevitable realities that remind us of our own mortality. The Bible Project explains it this way. Israel's laws regarding purity and impurity kept life and death, their own mortality, ever present before them. Because Yahweh is the creator and sustainer of all life, anything dying or exhibiting signs of decay can't be in his presence. That's why reproductive fluids were considered impure in ancient Israel those fluids were representative of life. To be leaking life and the presence of the creator of life was to bring symbolic death into his presence. Leviticus is identifying the unique ways male and female, both bearing the image of God, experience the realities of life outside of the Garden of Eden. Things that are considered blessings, intimacy in marriage, bearing a child, these beautiful realities also bring humanity to the boundary of life and death, making them unclean. However, many of us are familiar that the scripture's intentions can often be far removed from their implementation. Thus, the identification of a bleeding woman tells us as the audience that this woman would have been completely isolated because of the intensity with which the religious leaders of the day intended to follow the Torah, something Jesus rebukes them for. She could not have gotten married or had a child. She would not have had the loving touch of a friend or a family member. She would have been avoided by everyone in her community for fear that she would make them unclean. And the suffering only gets worse. Keep reading with me. Verse 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. It's hard for us to genuinely understand what this woman would have gone through in our attempts to stop her bleeding. Periods were wildly misunderstood and usually treated by physicians who were closer to our modern conception of a magician than an actual doctor. This is wildly influenced by some of the philosophies at the time. Pliny the Elder, a Roman philosopher, was wildly influential, and he was convinced that periods were magical sorcery in which women were enabled to, with the power, to kill entire fields of crops, cause bees to leave their hives, and control the weather. I wish I was joking, but that is true. (laughs) Um, And so unfortunately, this fear around periods led to many Roman practices being incredibly violent and painful, like applying ligatures to the female body to stop blood flow. And before anyone shakes their head at the misconceptions that ancient empiricists had about women, recent history is also riddled with great failures of caring for the suffering of women. For example, In 1898, German doctors fed fresh cow ovaries to a young woman suffering from severe hot flashes. This quote-unquote scientific experiment was one of the first hormonal treatments used to treat women. It wasn't until 1993, only 30 years ago, that Congress passed a law stipulating that women must be included in clinical trials in numbers sufficient to provide valid analysis of any differences in the way women and men respond to treatment. In the absence of such a requirement, researchers had often reported data from men as if they applied to both. Just recently, the New York Times published an article articulating the many misconceptions about menopause and the great suffering women are expected to endure. This doesn't even include the research that is beginning to show the list of growing side effects that are the result of developing girls being prescribed birth control as a means to mitigate severe period symptoms so that they can go to school because there is no other effective treatment. Even further, I think of Nepal where there still persists a tradition in which women are banished to huts during their periods. And every year, women die of suffocation and smoke inhalation because the closets, the huts are the size of closets, and they have to light fires in them to survive the winter. It's such a problem that the Nepali government, after illegalizing the practice, had to criminalize it in order to try to deter it because of the harm it perpetuates against women. I share all of this with you not to be provocative, but to remind us that the suffering of this bleeding woman is not a distant problem of a forgotten time. It is a testimony to the suffering of women around the world today. Jesus's care for women was not just radical in first century Rome. It is radical now. With that in mind, look at verses 27 through 28 with me. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Okay, More backstory. Flip with me to Numbers 15, verses 37 through 40. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them to make fringes on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue cord on the fringe of each corner. The word corner here is knoth. You have the fringe so that when you see it, you will remember all of the commandments of the Lord and do them and not follow the lust of your own heart and your own eyes. So you shall remember and do all my commandments. You shall be holy to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. This passage is referring to a shawl that is called a talid, and it is worn by the Jewish community as an outer garment all day and to pray. On the corners of these shawls are tassels that are elaborately braided to represent the 613 laws of the Torah. Now, flip over with me to Malachi 4, last one, I promise. 4, 1 through 2. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, a moniker for the coming Messiah, will rise with healing in its rays. The word rays here is kanaf. And so out of this passage arose a legend that if you could just touch the hymn of the coming Messiah's Talit, if you could just touch the Kanaf, you would be healed. So here we have a woman who has heard the prophecies of a Messiah who is so powerful that just the hem of his garment could heal her and she has come to the end of trying to heal herself. She's heard the rumors about a man named Jesus who is raising the dead, touching the unclean, healing the sick, touching the unclean, and with desperation thinks to herself, if I could just touch his clothes. And so she risks everything to go and touch the hem of Jesus's garment. And this is crazy. Because we know that not only is she not supposed to be there because anyone who even slightly brushes past her will be made unclean, Leviticus 15, but we know from the text leading up to this moment that Jesus is with Jairus, a synagogue leader. Jairus was a man of honor and respect and education who would never have been caught in a social setting with a bleeding woman for fear of being made unclean. And so the marginalized woman hides herself from the crowd. She hides herself from Jesus and in the hopes of not being seen with the desperation that sacrifices itself for just a chance of healing She comes up behind Jesus and touches the edge of his cloak. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Church, if this was the end of the story, it would be worth repeating for centuries a miracle has occurred because Jesus has encountered a woman who is now freed from every burden I've just spent the last 10 minutes trying to imagine with all of you. Not only is she free from the burden of bleeding and the horrible medical treatment, but the financial burden incurred by this disease, she can now walk amongst her community. She could get married. She could go. To the temple. She could participate in every social and religious practice that gave her community meaning without having to hide her face or watch from a distance. The story is scandalous, but it gets better. Keep reading with me. Verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, "'Who touched my clothes?' you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Okay, if you were taking notes, there are three things we learn about the character of Jesus from these verses. Number one, Jesus will not let you encounter him without being seen by him. The reason why I chose this passage to teach on prayer is because if your experience of prayer has been anything like mine, I find myself seeing Jesus the way the woman in the text did. And what I mean by that is often I see Jesus as a transaction rather than a relationship. I don't say this with shame or condemnation because many of us were either implicitly and maybe even explicitly taught that God is a distant figure with whom you come before with your request and pose as little imposition on him as possible. I cannot recount to you the number of times I have prayed the prayer if you just have the time. Or I know this isn't very important, but if you're taking requests, can I just ask? My understanding of prayer was that Jesus is a very busy man and he doesn't have time to concern himself with the things that I want or need. And so like the woman, I come before the Messiah with shame and desperation, believing that the greatest thing he could give me is the answer to my request. I think that many of us seek the goodness of God we have heard rumors about, but we try to enter prayer and hide ourselves from him. And the problem with this view of prayer is that it leads us to believe that prayer should be or is only the last resort. How many times do we go about our grief and anxiety by attempting to take things into our sphere of control, by talking them out, by going to therapy, by shopping online or going for a run? These things are not inherently bad things at all. I do them all the time but when they replace prayer as the primary means for engaging in life's suffering, we are like the woman hoping Jesus will heal us without seeing us. But the good news this morning is that is not who Jesus is. Rather, Jesus is the kind of God who requires that we enter into his proximity, experience communion with him, and then receive his goodness. This brings me to point number two, Jesus is relentless in his love. How good is the love of Jesus Christ that he won't let it go. Who touched me, who touched me, who touched me. This is the son of God. And rather than forcing her hand, he gently calls the woman to come to him. I think back to Genesis 3, when sin has entered the garden and God comes and walking amongst creation, he calls out, where are you? Because Adam and Eve have hidden themselves. Have you ever wondered why, the, why God, the knower of all things, would ask, where are you? Yet he defies our expectations and asks us to come to him. Seeking us out, he gives us the freedom to press into his seeking or hide from it. Over and over again, the scriptures testify to a God that proves that he seeks to know us, to commune with us, to abide with us, to be with us. And the parallel imagery here is astounding because Christ has come for the salvation of the world. But just like our father in the garden, Jesus comes and pulls us back into his presence by asking, who touched me? Who touched me? Where are you? Where are you? I can't help but thinking how many of us might be trying to hide ourselves from God. How many of us hear the question, who touched me? And we feel our hearts sink because we do not know what will happen if we reveal who we truly are before the Lord. How many of us believe the world's narratives about what is shameful and unclean about us, and we hope that we can enter into prayer without God knowing who we are. Last point for this text, Jesus leaves no room for questioning who he encounters. Remember, Jesus is walking with Jairus, a religious leader. It can be hard for us to feel the sense of urgency permeating every moment of this text, but Jesus is on his way to heal a dying girl who is the beloved daughter of a man of prominence. And if you haven't read the gospel yet, one, I highly recommend them. But two, each gospel has its own way of depicting the rocky relationship Jesus had with Israel's religious leaders. Jesus comes and is touching unclean things. He is forgiving sins. This is the power that the Pharisees do not have. It creates a tangible tension between Jesus and the Pharisees because where the Pharisees separate themselves apart in their cleanliness, Jesus shares a meal with the oppressive tax collector and the oppressed prostitutes and both are finding freedom in the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus is rewriting the narrative of who is welcome in the community of the kingdom of God. And every time he does it, he strips evil of its power. And the Pharisees hate him for it. Yet Jairus, out of sheer love for his daughter and desperation, forgets all of this and comes to Jesus and asks him to come and heal his daughter a powerful man humbled before a crowd. And yet Jesus stops to ask, who touched me, who touched me, who touched me? You can feel the anxiety of the disciples leap off the page when they say, you see the people crowding around you and yet you can say, who touched me? I love the disciples because they are constantly failing and yet they are so honest about it. Because I know that if that were me in this situation, I would be like, Jesus, this is our chance. If you raise the dying daughter of a synagogue leader, how could the Pharisees continue to deny you the honor and status you deserve? Knowing that as a close disciple, I would greatly benefit from Jesus's elevated status. And yet in contrast with this heart posture, Jesus ignores all urgency and looking around asks over and over again, Who touched me? Who touched me? Who touched me? I love the way Susan Miller explains the dichotomy of status in this passage. The woman in our passage is alone, and her condition implies that she's unlikely to have a husband. The isolation of the woman is suggested by her hiddenness within the crowd and her words are spoken secretly to herself. Our passage is striking in its description of the inner thoughts and reactions of the woman. Jairus comes forward to make his request to Jesus before the crowds, whereas the woman has no one to act on her behalf. The woman approaches Jesus secretly, trying to avoid detection, whereas Jairus comes forward publicly and throws himself at Jesus' feet. The woman touches Jesus' garment, believing that this small action will make her healthy. Jairus, in in contrast, requests Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter by placing his hands on her. You see, we cannot forget the juxtaposition of Jairus, the named man of honor and the unnamed, unclean woman, because there is no scenario in first century Judaic imagination in which this elevated man and this marginalized woman should at all be in proximity with each other. And yet here they are, occupying the same space. And notice what Jesus does by looking for the woman. He takes her from a marginalized place, bringing her to the forefront of the crowd so that no one can deny that Jesus loves that bleeding woman just as much as the religious leader's daughter. Jesus leaves no room for questioning who he encounters it gets even more scandalous. The last two verses with me. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering." When this woman reveals her condition and that she touched Jesus' clothes, the assumption would have been that her uncleanliness would have transferred to Jesus, making him unclean. But this, and this is wild, when the woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment, his cleanliness, his purity, his holiness is transferred to her. I love the way the Bible Project puts it. They say, impurity and holiness are both contagious. If you come into contact with someone impure, you become impure too. And when you make contact with God's holiness, you too become holy. This is why Jesus's fearlessness with the people he healed is so significant. He touched dead bodies and raised them to life. He touched people with skin diseases and healed them. A woman linking menstrual blood touched him and was healed. He entered the homes of non-Israelites who were eating non-kosher food. Any of those things would render a normal Israelite impure. But instead, Jesus' contagious holiness transforms impurity to purity, making people fit for the presence of God. And to profess this reality to the onlooking crowd, Jesus gives a name to the unnamed woman, daughter. The woman who was alone, who had no one to act on her behalf, who did not have an earthly father to advocate for her life. And here we have Jesus calling her daughter. Jesus looks upon this woman whose faith has come to the end of itself and bestows an identity of love upon her. How incredible. When we meditate on the parallels of this story, who touched me, who touched me, daughter? Not only does Jesus refuse to let you go unseen, he refuses to let you go unknown. And I realize for a sermon on prayer that at this point I've talked very little about prayer. (laughs) However, the reason why I chose this passage is because I find it one of the most compelling examples of Christ's relentless love for humanity that can only be found in relationships. And that's what I wanna to teach today. Prayer is a relationship. It's not a transaction. It's not a distant and cold cosmology or a material universe that's given personable qualities that somehow have the authority to tell you who you are. No, prayer is the encountering of a live and real God who literally rose from the dead and who is calling you out to be truly and fully known but if your journey has been anything like mine, then that all sounds really nice, but none of it's been true for you. This February actually marks 10 years since I committed my life to Christ. And as I've been reflecting on the last decade of what Jesus has done, I find it a little comical that I've been asked to teach on prayer because I don't think that there's a part of my journey I have struggled with more. And I realize that that's ironic because I'm the head of the prayer ministry here at Ecclesia. (laughs) But it's true. It took me years to believe that God could genuinely heal people. I knew that theologically he could, but I didn't believe that he actually would. I didn't believe that God was at all concerned with my life or my desires, I'm naturally quite skeptical of everything that is the philosopher in me. And so it took me years to believe that prayer was something more than just an act of saying things an omnipotent God should already know. And when I began praying, there were enough unanswered prayers that I could just not get myself to believe that this practice was more than just a waste of time. And then my church back home did a prayer training for people to join the prayer team. And leading up to it, I just had this nagging sense that wouldn't go away, so I finally gave in and reluctantly went and kept to myself. But towards the end, they asked people to raise their hand if they had never had a word or a vision or an encounter with the Holy Spirit so that people could pray for that encounter. And as I was just a few years into my new faith, I wanted so desperately to be a good disciple of Jesus that I raised my hand, hoping that I would experience something like what I had heard rumors about. I had an incredible group of people pray for me and nothing happened, nothing changed. My body felt exactly the same. I didn't hear a word or a voice. It was just the same old, same old. And I remember thinking, I tried. I gave it my best. There's nothing wrong with a faith that goes to church and practices the disciplines and follows the rules. Prayer is just not for me. But unfortunately, now I was signed up for prayer team. (laughs) And so every other Sunday, I would stand up front, follow all of the steps I had been given at at the trainings and basically just recite scripture over people seeking prayer. Hoping, hoping that when enough people signed up for prayer team, I could quietly bow out without anyone noticing my absence. And then about six months into being on prayer team, a woman walked up at the very end of worship, and she had kept herself noticeably to a distance. And when I realized that every other leader was busy, I began walking over to her, and at about three feet away, she told me to stop and that I couldn't come any closer. She began to tell me that she had been recently diagnosed with an incredibly rare and highly contagious skin disease that was horrifically painful. And when she sat down to receive prayer that evening, it had been seven months since she had had any physical contact. And she looked at me with pure desperation and she said, can you pray that the Lord would heal me? In church, I wish I could say that with bold prayer and petition, I started advocating on behalf of this woman, but that would be an utter lie. I actually sat there, absolutely terrified, trying to figure out how to get out of praying because I didn't actually believe that God would heal her. And I wish that I was being dramatic, but I actually looked around to see if there were any other prayer leaders available. Um, And no one was. And so I said to myself, go through the motions, say the prayer, recite the passage on the bleeding woman and hope for the best. And so just like I was trained to, I said the words, come Holy Spirit, come. And in a way, I still don't know how to describe. I heard the words, go and touch her. And of course, being the skeptic that I am, All I could think was there's no way that God is actually going to tell me to go and touch this woman. Did he not just listen to what she told me? But the more I denied it, the louder the voice got. And I just remember thinking, God, there is no way that you can use me and this prayer to actually heal this woman. And with an undeniable voice, I heard him say, I am the God who loves and I will make her clean. And so I looked at the woman and I said, I think God is calling me to hold you. I wrapped my arms around her and held her as she wept for 20 minutes, praying over and over again, the identity given to God's beloved daughter. And to be honest, I have no idea if she received physical healing that day. She left at the end of that prayer And I never saw her again. But what I can tell you is that like one of the onlookers in that story, I watched Jesus's holiness infect and make pure an unnamed daughter. And I have never been the same. Because that day, the faith of that desperate woman taught me what it means to pray. She taught me that prayer includes every tear every hopeless thought, every feeling of anger, lament of abandonment, cries of longing, and the small kernel of truth that says to itself, if I just touch him, I will be healed. Faith does not deny the human condition. It partners with it. Faith brings us with all of our baggage into the presence of holiness and finds itself covered in the eternal and incomprehensible love of a Savior. And I wish that I could say that was the last time I approached prayer with a heart full of doubt. Just the other night, I couldn't sleep because I was just having a day where the world is terrible and I've convinced myself that I'm the least terrible. And so I took out my phone to scroll through Instagram. I kid you not, one of the first posts that came up was about a man who gave up passive screen time for prayer and ended up being a vessel for a whole community brought to healing. And my gut reaction was sure, okay. And I just kept scrolling and I lead a prayer ministry at church but like the Holy Spirit does with gentle conviction, came and reminded me of the gift of prayer. How sweet was the moment when I put down my phone, closed my eyes and sat in the silence and breathed in the peace and freedom of Christ, whose forgiveness and love covers me anew every day. I'm going to invite the band up for worship, but as I was praying for the Sunday, I had some specific words for our call to prayer this morning. The first one is that I just have this sense that there's a deep need of healing with scripture and prayer specifically for women. I've been really blessed over the last couple of months to hear some of the experiences of the women in our church and the honestly really hard reality some of you have gone through because scripture was not used to proclaim Christ's love over you. It was used to minimize you. And to be honest, in prayer, I have felt a deep grief in my soul for the suffering that women have experienced at the hands of bad exegesis. So church, if it is okay this morning, I'm going to preach specifically to the women in the room, and I'm going to proclaim a blessing over you. Any woman here who has not believed that this book is for you just as much in the men in the room, that is a lie. Jesus loves you so much that he will not stop seeking you out the moment you pursue him because you are just as important to him as the most powerful man in the room. You are so precious to Jesus that he seeks you out no matter the cost because he would rather look like a fool then let anyone believe that you did not matter to him. This book, these stories, Jesus Christ is just as much for you as any man. Anything that says otherwise is a lie that is incompatible with the written testimony of Christ's love for you. And if you hear nothing else this morning, church, please hear me on this. Anything that states that you as a woman are not equal in value to a man is a sin that is antithetical to and at war against the nature of Jesus Christ. He is for you. He is seeking you out, and not in spite of the fact that you are a woman, but because of the fact that you are a woman. If that is you today, I would be honored to pray with you. Secondly, I had the sense that there are some here this morning that come to church that love Jesus, that check all of the boxes. And you heard my teaching this morning, and you just had that same feeling that I had, that. That could never be me, and I believe God wants to encounter you this morning. So if that's you, please come receive prayer. And finally, I just had this sense that for some, the line 12 years of suffering was the only thing that resonated this morning, that there is a deep pain of unanswered prayer that has decimated hope in God's goodness. I do not know why God answers some prayers and not others. I do know that on some mornings I can proclaim with joy that God is a good, good father. And other mornings I am on my knees begging that he reminds me that that is true. If that is you, we would love to pray for you because I think God has some healing in store. If any of these resonate with you, we want to pray, we believe in the power of prayer here at Ecclesia, And if any of those don't, but you still need prayer, the table is open. And so as we come before the table and we think about the fact that the woman had to enter into communion with God, We see the bread and we hear Christ's voice, this is my body broken for you. And we look at the cup and we know that this was Christ's blood poured out for you. I'm going to invite our communion servers up and there will be people to hand out communion I'm also going to invite the prayer team up. I think there at Ecclesia, while I know so many of you are incredible people of prayer, there has been hesitancy to respond in service. And I just want to say, there is something brewing here that I believe in. And as a skeptic, I can say to you, I genuinely believe that God can heal and will heal. So if you need prayer this morning, the table is open. We invite you up.